All right, let's get started here this morning. Acts chapter 3. We're going to take a sneak peek at what we'll be studying this morning, but I want us to get a little bit more discussion than we'll be able to cover this morning. Acts chapter 3 is interesting in that we are still kind of trying to get our footing if we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, getting a sense for what it's like to do this following Jesus when he's not here. Um, And obviously, they've received this miraculous display and outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, Peter has preached. Believers in mass are gathering there at the Temple Mount, trying to receive some kind of instruction and, in a sense, just kind of day by day, feeling their way through this new experience of what are we, what are we supposed to be doing. And then in chapter 3, however much time has passed at the end of chapter 2, while they're kind of continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, uh, in chapter 3, it just kind of picks up in the same scenario of they're going to the temple And meeting there, and if you look in, some of your Bibles may have pictures, or you could look online. I know ESV.org has some nice Bible maps and pictures. Around the temple building itself, there are a couple different courts. And on the outside of the biggest area of the temple mount are these massive porches and kind of covered areas held up by, I mean, dozens and dozens of pillars, and they would meet in these porch areas. And so you'll see references to like a portico or a porch of Solomon or something. And so there they go back to the temple for prayer, for teaching. And in chapter 3, we have this record of a man who was lame from birth, and Peter heals him. Well, if you've grown up in Sunday school or spend time reading your Bible, you, you just read, oh, yeah, another lame man healed. But sometimes we forget, but Jesus has gone, and, and we're in this era of trying to figure out what this will look like. So this is really the, the first miracle that anyone has done in the absence of Jesus. Uh, so this is a big deal as we look at this story of Peter healing the lame man. It's as if we could say it's the first healing that has occurred in the New Testament church. So, that raises the question, and again, we'll touch on it this morning just briefly with a couple of points, but I want us to discuss it a little more, perhaps this week and next, just to start wrapping our minds around answering this question. Have the miraculous gifts ceased in the New Testament church? Not have miracles ceased but have the miraculous gifts ceased? Uh, so let's, let's just try to think on this question a little bit this morning. First, by saying that when we say miraculous gifts, uh, there's, there's a lot of ways we could think about that, uh, but I want us to think specifically then about what we would call either sign gifts, so oftentimes we'll read many signs and wonders were done. So those Acts that were done, either sign gifts or revelatory gifts. Uh, These gifts, these miraculous gifts, 
uh, that we see in Scripture, we see even here unfolding in Acts chapter 3, we're asking, are these gifts continuing in the church today? And really specifically, we're talking about two, the gift of healing, which we see here in Acts 3, and the gift of prophecy, which would be the most common revelatory gift that's talked about in the New Testament. Notice I'm not saying or asking, has the supernatural ceased? Uh, That will always continue to be. Uh, God can do miracles. Uh, That's that's not what we're talking about. We're we're talking about in God's gifting of the church by the power of the Spirit, um, are we still expecting and should we even a step further be performing uh, the gifts that are in the church of healing and revelation? Yes, um, but I also feel like people fall pretty readily into either the more charismatic definition of tongues being ecstatic speech uh, versus what we saw in Acts 2 languages. Um, So I think we will touch on that as we move through our discussion in the next week, perhaps, um, because that would certainly fall under the revelatory gifts, and generally, if you're trying to get to the biblical definition of it. Okay, so now down in your minds, when we ask the question, have the miraculous gifts ceased, uh, in, in no way are we trying to limit God's power. Uh, we're simply trying to unfold what has God said about the display of his power. So again, it's, it's just an exercise in coming to the word, gathering data, interpreting what's there for us, and then drawing some conclusions for our application. Can we start by working together on some kind of definition of a miracle? How would you define a miracle? Zachary, get us started. Um, As you said, yes, but I think this is a miracle as well. I know it's repetitious, but uh, usually when I pray, it's the first thing that I thank Jesus and God for. It's this gift, life, in which is given to us. Uh, It's not guaranteed. Um, And it is a miracle that uh, (laughs) created, you know, humanity. These are families. Each and every day on this earth is a blessing, and we must never lose sight of that. So, so there's the, we'll call this like the, a miracle common, in a sense, which we'll see maybe almost a contradiction. We talk about the miracle of life, the miracle of birth, you know, for new parents at the hospital. Oh, it's a miracle. And, and, we understand what, what we're talking about. This is an incredible design of God. Um, so there, there's a kind of a common usage. Let, let's now keep going down this path and keep hammering out uh, what we're talking about. David? Something that applies like the natural order or the uh, physical arrangement of the world that is usual processes. Okay, so David's saying there, there's the natural order, there's normal processes that are going on, 
and yet something that we see as what we're calling a miracle kind of defies that. It doesn't flow according to the normal process. That's good. What else? Other thoughts? Miracle? Yeah, Brian? Sometimes I'm tempted to think of things that are, I call things miracles that are uh, extreme coincidences. And God, obviously, as sovereign, does orchestrate those, but it probably lowers the bar for what really is miraculous to call those miracles. Right, but you did give us like a key element. Um, David was kind of getting to the actual manifestation of the miracle. It defies natural order. Um, but we're also looking to add God was doing it. So it's this divine act of God's power. It's divine intervention that is kind of inserted into, yet transcendent above this natural order of creation. God created all things. He sustains all things by the word of his power. And yet, at times, he can intervene in a way that is different than what he is allowing nature to, uh, to do. We, we talk in science about the laws of nature. Well, that's the established order of God for how things work. That's his maintaining of it. Uh, we're talking about something that's less common than that. So a miracle could really simply be just the less common way of God's working in the world. And while we're saying less common, we're not saying any less spectacular. It's actually going to catch our attention because that's not what we commonly see as God's sustaining power. So we're trying to get to miracle proper. We're not talking about the, the miracle of, of birth or, you know, you slide on black ice, spin around, get hit by, you know, two cars and three guardrails and land upside down in a ditch and you're alive. And you say it's a miracle that they're alive. Well, it's actually not. Like you were in a big piece of metal and, you know, you didn't, you know, have the guardrail come through your windshield and get you. It, it, it's amazing. And we could say God protected, but that could be very much just the natural order of seatbelts, airbags, and green grass that was soft to land on or something. It's not everything we say commonly is a miracle though it may be the work of God, was actually God's intervention in a display of power that transcends his normal working. Um, so miracles proper are something like we see here in Acts chapter 3, where clearly nature has produced in, in the degeneration since the fall a crippled set of legs that just do not work and never have. He's lame from birth. And yet God intervenes, and by the simple display of his power, these legs are empowered, and, and the, the language is kind of dramatic. He, it doesn't say he stood up and went leaping. It says, leaping up, he walked. Um, just to communicate, this is, this is extreme. Nobody stands up like this. Uh, the healthiest among us don't usually spring up like this guy did, but that's what he did, and and the language is clear in the text that, that everybody who knew this guy, believer or unbeliever, recognized this, this is not the normal process of nature. Um, this was truly a miracle. So in thinking of miracles, uh, we know God can do them. So in no way are we putting God in a box by asking the question, 
in God's design for his church and the gifting of the body have the miraculous gifts of things like healing or revelation, have they ceased? That, that's not an attack on God. It's simply saying we want to give special attention to what God has said about how he gifts the church. And if someone does give that attention and concludes that these gifts are, are still operable in some way, then you can, you can have a conversation about that. If someone wants to say, no, I think these gifts have ceased, great, show me where you see that in Scripture. Um, but it's not that one side or the other in answering this question is saying there's something wrong with God. No, they're, they're just trying to hear what God has said and figure out what that means in the church today. Um, so this conversation is really about the daily practice of the Spirit's power uh, in the church today. We're asking if the Bible presents a temporary nature of miraculous gifts. And if it does, is there any indication of the timing at which point those gifts expire? Does the Bible talk about gifts in any way that makes it temporary? Well, welcome. (laughs) Uh, We'll look forward to greeting you, Gloria. Uh, Come and join us. We're asking, does the Bible put any kind of temporary thought to the exercise of the gifts. And so that's what we want to explore here. Have the supernatural gifts ceased? There are two primary answers to the question. What are they? Yes and no, right? See, we all got that one. Uh, That's the easy part. Now let's try to explain that yes and no. Um, If we say yes, the supernatural gifts continue, well, that, that... School of thought and understanding is is labeled by that very essence of continuing. It's called continuationist. That's a continuationist or continuationism, as a noun, position. It's the belief that the supernatural gifts, healing, revelation, even sometimes applied wisdom or tongues, uh, these gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, have not ceased but rather are still available for believers today. So in other words, the miraculous gifts continue. If someone says in answer to the question, have the supernatural gifts ceased? If if they want to say, yes, they have, then we take that word cease to define their position. Cessation, cessationism. Cessationism teaches that the supernatural gifts have ceased or come to an end, and generally in one of two ways, either with the completion of the scriptures, the New Testament canon, or at the end of the apostolic age, the death of the last apostle, which generally happens to coincide anyway. So continuationism, the gifts continue in common practice in the church today. Um, Just as we would say there's the gift of teaching and someone should stand in the pulpit, there should be the gift of healing. There should be the gift of prophecy. Those things should be functioning. Cessationism says that the gifts have ceased. Again, neither side has any advantage on their theology proper, the definition of God and his power. He's able to do miracles. We're simply saying there's these two schools of thought, trying to see how these gifts function in the church through the book of Acts and beyond. 
Well, there's a key word that is used to clarify these two schools of thought because the word continue and the word cease actually are a a little bit vague. When we say the gifts continue, it raises questions like, well, how often do we see them? Do they continue kind of like we could say they continue through the Old Testament? Well, that's once in a great while. So if, if hundreds of years go by before there's another gift, is that saying they continue? And if we say, do they cease, do we mean, well, once the apostles' ministry ended, we never again see a miracle at all? So cease and continue alone don't tell the whole story. So we add this key word into the discussion, and that key word is the word normative. Is it normal? So in asking, have the gifts ceased, it's probably more specific to say, are those gifts normative in the church today? Is it normal to see them practiced or not? And now, now we're getting a little bit more nuanced. Now we're saying, is this regular? Is this the ongoing experience? Because if we're not careful, it's like, well, I, I, I know a missionary. I know him well. And he said this happened on the field. Some, what we would call miraculous event. And it's like, okay, but we're not talking about just an example. Because remember, we believe God can do miracles. He can display his power however he sees fit to reveal his glory. So it's, it's not that we're against anecdotal conversation coming in. We're just saying, okay, yes, I have no reason to doubt or believe either one. I'll just take your word for it. But we'll set that aside. And, but we're asking in the function of the church, in the weekly gathering or in the week's relationships, are these gifts normative? Are they being practiced? Paul? One thing that's been helpful for me in some study with this has been the um, focusing on the word gifts, which goes along with your idea of normative, is the question of not you're not you're not weighing through the capabilities and capacity of God. That's not what you're determining. And you're not even determining can God act in any way that he chooses. What you're weighing through is the dispensing of something. You're weighing through the gift. Is this gift something that we still receive? And, and in what way? So early on in some of my own personal study, I weighed, I looked very much at continuation, very much at cessation, instead of focusing on first on the word gift. And then thinking about then taking that down and, and doing some additional study from there. But anyway. Yeah, so even as you're hearing miraculous gift, we, we we're maybe drawn to the miraculous side and want to debate whether miracles happen. But put it together, as Paul is saying, the miraculous gifts. This is God, by the Spirit, equipping saints to edify the body and eventually uh, glorify Christ. So uh, keep them together so that we're not focused on can miracles happen or can God do miracles. We've, we've already established that. We're saying how does that power of God in the gifting of the church manifest itself. Now, if we come to the Bible and just begin to observe miracles, uh, it's interesting, and, and this will give you a heads up on a couple of blanks in your sermon outline. Um, we see really just a relatively few seasons 
in all of Scripture where miracles are kind of clustered together. What we see in Scripture is not that all believers throughout the ages have seen miraculous displays of God's power. Rather, if you were reading through your Bible all the way through, you would, you would be drawn in your mind to certain generations or seasons of God's dealing with his people where miracles were kind of expected. They were a little more normal. Um, can anybody think of a couple of those seasons? Yeah, Patty? Like Elijah, Elisha, the prophets. Right. So the prophets, but specifically Elijah and Elisha, um, Elijah worked a number of miracles, and if you kind of do the math, based on God telling Elisha he would receive a double portion, it seems he did about double the miracles. But in that kind of generation of those two prophets, we have more miracles than almost anywhere else in the Old Testament. Roy? Moses in the establishment of the nation of Israel. Right. The establishment of Israel under Moses, what we would call that whole first picture of redemption is this other season of miracles. Now, it kind of goes two generations. It's the generation coming out of Egypt, seeing all the miracles in Egypt, in the wilderness, and then you could kind of carry over to their kids who experienced entering the promised land and the sun standing still for Joshua and a few events. But, boy, you, you read Exodus through Joshua, and really that's the first season of miracles. Years later, it's Elijah, Elisha. Uh, those kind of represent the two seasons of miracles in the Old Testament. Uh, anywhere else, it just you just don't see it much. There's a few instances. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery furnace and they don't burn up. Well, that's clearly the miraculous power of God to preserve, but it was rare. It would be as rare as you and I seeing something like that. Uh, so don't think all those Old Testament saints saw miracles all the time and it was just the way it was and we kind of fall into this mindset of, boy, I wish that was still happening today. Well, it wasn't always happening. A uh, couple seasons there. What do we have in the New Testament then? Or do you have something else, Zachary? St. Genesis uh, specifically, just geologically and graphically speaking, uh, God created the heavens and the earth as sun rising each and every day, being positioned exactly. If it was centimeters away from us, we would all freeze to death. Closer, we would all burn. So Genesis 1, this power of God. Yeah, that's Old Testament. New Testament. Christ, man. <laughs> Just all together. I was, was going to say, don't think too long about this one, Zachary. Don't think too long. Yeah, I was uh, scheming up there, but um, <clears throat> what he did for all of us, we are in debt. So when Jesus comes, there, obviously we, we read about all the miracles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they're recorded for us. And when Peter stands at Pentecost, he, he reminds us God attested uh, to who Jesus was by these signs and wonders. Uh, so the lifetime of Jesus is kind of this third era where you could almost expect um, if you were gathering in a crowd in Galilee and the, the master, this teacher Jesus was there. Based on what you knew, you might expect to see a miracle. Um, that's why after the first feeding of thousands of people, 
you know, Jesus gets in a boat to sail across the sea, and they all go running around the north side of the Sea of Galilee, a lot of miles, because they want to see something like this again. We'll take some more free food. That's amazing. How does he do that? Um, This is quite a show. Um, People wanted to see these signs and wonders. So the life of Jesus, and that leaves really one other season in the biblical record. What is that? Right, the apostles. Uh, What we're seeing here unfold in the book of Acts. So gathering even just that limited data, it it just reminds us, it's not that miracles don't happen any other time, but it's really clear that there are these bold clusters of miracles that stand out in Scripture. And if we try to link them together, why in those seasons uh, we, we begin to understand kind of our next point in the argument, um, that the thread of commonality in these seasons has to do with God revealing himself to his people. Multiple Bible verses give us statements of purpose for the signs. Remember, the common word for miracle is the word sign. It's pointing to something. It is, it is by definition revelatory. It is calling your attention and saying, look. So the question for us is, what is the purpose of these gifts? What are they pointing to? And repeatedly in Scripture, we're told how the signs confirmed the message of divine revelation. In essence, the clearest statements in the Bible about miraculous gifts are statements about their purpose. So I want us to look at Exodus chapter 4, the season of Moses. Exodus 4, Moses has heard God speak from the burning bush. Well, let's just read the paragraph beginning in verse 1. Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So here's a question about God's revelation. But the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And your Bible might have a dash or a couple dots or something because it just breaks, and then we get right away to what? Okay, so what? What's this about the snake? And it's there for us. Uh, And it became a staff in his hand, dash, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Similar display of power with the the leprous hand. And verse 8 gets to the heart of it, belief, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, 
They may believe the latter sign, and if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. These are signs. What are they pointing to? They are giving affirmation to God's revelation through Moses. But why should they listen to Moses? Why should they listen to some guy who comes walking out of the wilderness and says, I have a word from God? Why should you listen to somebody if they said, on your porch, knocking on your door, and you answer, I have a word from God? You say, which chapter and verse? Beyond that, I don't, I don't have any obligation. <laughs> so that it is showing us that these signs were for a purpose, to to engender belief in God's voice through Moses. Uh, Just to jump to the next era, the time of Elijah and Elisha, 1 Kings chapter 17. The widow's son, you remember, dies. And she calls the prophet, verse 17, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. He cries out to the Lord, and look at the conclusion after the healing of verse 23, and the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in, that is in your mouth is truth. We can argue that God in his kindness gave this woman back her son, agreed, but what was the primary purpose of even that kindness? It was to verify that this prophet spoke God's truth. What he said was truly the word of God. And how could these people know that? Well, God affirmed that message uh, with signs and wonders. Uh, The prophet would say the same thing in the next chapter. uh, In his showdown with the prophets of Baal, Uh, you kind of know that story. Look over at verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. You know, it would would prove our point if he just said, uh, do these signs and wonders and, and burn up this whole sacrifice to show that you are God. That would be revelation. But then he adds, and that I am your servant, and that I'm doing this according to your word. It's the clear path of revelation, God through his servant giving truth. In times when they didn't have a Bible or a kind of a gathered collection, a standard of doctrine, and so God is verifying his truth, even here amongst unbelievers, through signs and wonders. We jump forward to Jesus' ministry. Turn to John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. 
And Nicodemus gives us some pretty good truth. He says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, that could be flattery, uh, because we know that at least some of the scribes and Pharisees saw these miracles, and it just made them mad. There are times when Jesus did some mighty works, and, and they plotted to kill him. Like, their, their immediate response was a, a complete repulsion at, at these displays of miraculous power. So it could be flattery, but I think when we understand this whole encounter with Nicodemus, it could also be genuine. He could be looking at his Old Testament and recognizing if all these signs and wonders are being given, why would we not think this is a man from God who's speaking truth? Whether or not he even recognized him as the Messiah, he would think this fits the pattern. Signs and wonders to confirm what clearly is beautiful truth. From the time Jesus started preaching there in Luke 4 at the temple, we see people were amazed and he, and he just taught with such grace and truth that they, they were just taken by it. Signs and wonders confirming uh, that he was from God. Jesus will add to this, John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Again, not just about Jesus generally, but Jesus says, I told you, I've been speaking truth. The signs and wonders confirm that I am a speaker of truth, that the truth is indeed true. So Jesus in his own teaching is explaining that I do these works because they, they attest to who I am, that what I say is true. John 14, with his disciples, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else Believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus here isn't disputing, oh, ye of little faith. He's saying, listen, believe me because I'm telling it to you. Or it's fine. If faith comes through seeing the signs and wonders, that's what they're for. So Jesus isn't, well, shame on you that you would believe the sign and not just believe what I say. He's saying, whether I say it and you believe it or whether I do the works and that kind of jogs the mind a little bit and, and stirs the faith, fine. That's what they're for. They are given to establish that faith in what I say as true. So Jesus has an interesting argument there. Believe me or believe the works that would lead you then to believe me. John chapter 20. The author, John, kind of summarizes his writings, even though he still has another chapter to give us. But at the end of chapter 20, verse 30, he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Do you remember why John said he did other signs? What's that in contrast to in the book of John? Do you remember? Anyone? John, John picks out seven signs, and he's going to even say this was the first. 
the turning the water into wine. And I think all but maybe one of the seven, he actually numbers them for us so we know, oh, wait a minute, he's grabbing seven signs out of everything that happened to kind of make this case of who Jesus is. So now when he gets to the end, he's, he knows he gave you some spectacular signs, but he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones I have given you, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose. Again, we're, we're trying to establish this theory, so to speak, that the clearest statements in the Bible about the miraculous works, the signs and wonders, are that they are given to us to confirm God's revelation. And we see it in the era of Moses, we see it in the prophets, we see it all through Jesus' ministry. And if we see it there, that miraculous signs were used to confirm Jesus' ministry among us, then we would expect that the apostles that he sends out in his name would also demonstrate that kind of miracle-working ability. And of course, that's what we see. So in Acts 2, verse 43, we saw it last time. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Acts chapter 5, in verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles as they were all together in Solomon's portico. Acts 14, verse 3. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. We just can't miss the fact that God wanted what these guys were saying to be solidified in people's minds by having seen the confirmation of signs and wonders. He bore witness to the word of his grace when they spoke of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God put this big exclamation point on it and said, whatever else you've experienced with the other messiahs, self-proclaimed messiahs that came and went throughout the history of Israel, this Jesus of Nazareth was the true Messiah. Hear what these men are saying about him and believe it because of these works that are confirming it. Paul would conclude Romans in chapter, towards the end of Romans in chapter 15 and verse 19. Paul had just said, I will not venture to speak of any, anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, I'm going around sharing Christ in word and deed by the power of the Spirit, and God is confirming it by signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12, in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, laboring twice to confirm that the apostolic ministry, which was 
revelatory, speaking of this gospel package, this good news, which is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus of Nazareth is that Son of God. That truth that's going out is confirmed by these signs and wonders and mighty works. And then lastly, in Hebrews chapter 2, we have this reference to these signs and wonders as well. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first, going back to these apostles, taking the message from Jesus himself now to the world. So it was confirmed, or it was preached there at first, declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So Acts, Romans, 2 Corinthians, Hebrews, Old Testament scriptures, all, all bringing a some kind of concluding approach to what we see in these seasons of miracles, that they were all designed to attest to the truth that was being spoken. That's helpful uh, because there's not much else you're going to find that talks about the signs. Again, you can go to a specific miracle and maybe say, well, this technically isn't in those four seasons. I understand that. Find anything else in Scripture that speaks of signs and wonders outside of this language of attesting to the message. Uh, and there would be then the conversation, but you're not going to find those passages. You'll find other miracles, but not other purposes for those miracles. So as we study the data in ultimately trying to answer this question, but it's a loaded question and it kind of forces you into Study. So let's just start with the study of the data and we start realizing God can do miracles anytime he wants to. And it could be purely out of the kindness uh, of his loving heart to heal someone. But it would be hard, you'd be hard pressed to argue that that is, that that happens in pure isolation. In other words, you would have to be arguing that God does some things that he has no intention of receiving glory from. He does it only for your good and never for his own. And then he, now you're skating on really thin ice uh, because that's just not the way God works. Uh, in his greatest kindness to us, Christ on the cross, it is ultimately about his glory. So even the death of Christ, as we'll see in Acts 3 this morning, the scriptures say God glorified his servant. Lifted up on a cross looked like this tragic execution at the hands of sinners, but it was actually the elevation of God and his love for sinners. So God calls it glorying his servant, glorifying him. So God always works for his glory. But that glory is so grand that it, that it just, it spills over into the welfare of all who believe. It, it's, it's the story of salvation. So, yes, God can choose to do these miracles, but just recognize, is, is any miracle really ever not designed to reveal God? 
and truth about him? I think maybe we just got so accustomed to studying miracles in isolation, kind of a a Sunday school approach, like, wow, God did that, and oh, wow, look, the prophet made the axe head float when it fell into the water, and oh, and look, you know, Jesus fed the 5,000, and and look, Peter's shadow just passed over these people, and they were healed, and and we want to talk about miracles, and, and we should, but we should keep talking about them until we get to their purpose, and and, and why did that happen? Because then we would see that all those miracles were pointing us to what God has spoken, what he has said, either through that redeemer, prophet, hero, rescuer, Moses, or through the prophets of old, or through the incarnate son of God, Jesus, or through the apostles. And then having studied all that information, we would, we would start getting to a conclusion that miracles are awesome because they help people understand who God is and how he has dealt kindly with us. And then we would say, well, wait a minute. We, we have that. We have the truth about God and how he has dealt kindly with us. So would I be surprised, regardless of those positions that we know are out there, continuationism, cessationism. Would I be surprised if someone said, having the record of who God is and how he has dealt with us, would I be surprised if there weren't as many miracles anymore because God has spoken clearly? He's confirmed his word. He's confirmed who Jesus is and and. If I stand and preach something in the pulpit, I don't need to do a sign or wonder for you to know if it's true. You have to do what the Bereans did. They, They searched what they had of the scriptures to see if it was so. And the Holy Spirit in them bears witness to what is true and who Jesus is and if they belong to him. The, the, the wonder is the Holy Spirit is in you and you know who God is now. And his law is written on your heart. And all week long this week, you know how to obey him. You know how to respond to him. And the power that brought Christ from the dead is at work in you to overcome temptation and to give a soft answer and to respond in love to your spouse. And maybe we're missing out on the the ordinary power of God. Ordinary, though supernatural, the Holy Spirit in you to not covet to not lust this week. That's the power of God on display in a pretty significant way. Now, I'm sure the guy that was chopping wood and the ax head went in the water and now he owes his buddy a lot of money for an ax head. I'm sure he was pretty concerned about that. So the prophet made it float and did a miracle to show God's power. But you have the power to say no to sin and to live rightly this week and not fail like you did the past week. And sometimes I think all the talk of miracles and are are we still going to see one in our lifetime and in our church is just, I don't know, it's maybe just focused on the wrong thing. Sure, that'll be great if God miraculously does something and you never forget it. You live out your days remembering that moment, but hopefully you live out those days every single day believing that the power of God really means something for that day. 
In other words, what's the use of waiting for the power of God to do something miraculous that you could talk about the rest of your life when you could live the power of God today and set your life on a different trajectory, perhaps? A life of overcoming, a life of victory. We've got more to say about these gifts, but I just want us to remember that we've got to get a better handle on what the power of God is doing for us today. Because regardless of your camp, continuationist or cessationist, how do you explain the power of God? How do you you demonstrate the power of God today in either camp if today's not a day of healing or revelation? What's the power of God going to look like in your life this week? might help us start making the miraculous talk of gifting. might make us think of the Holy Spirit and the power of God in ways that are far more practical, uh, helpful day by day. And so, Lord, as, as we wade into this conversation, would you keep us anchored to the text so that we keep drawing conclusions that are from it? And, and should you choose to work in our lives in, in the truly miraculous ways of intervening in some way that's far from normal, then may we praise you for it. But let us not neglect to praise you for the power that is working us today, that, that, that even gave us hearts to get up and be here this morning. And so thank you. Thank you for your work in our lives. Open our eyes uh, to, to what we are studying in the book of Acts that seems so familiar, that you would give us power from the Holy Spirit to advance your kingdom. Uh, we need help to believe that this is true and what this will look like, and so give us that help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep thinking on this. We'll talk some more next week.